listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about the influence David had on a generation, his life-enhancing connection with fans, musicians, actors, producers, broadcasters, and strangers who explain his popularity and the legacy he has left behind. I am your host, Louise Poynton. I am very excited to welcome my guest on this episode, successful musician, singer, and songwriter, Sarah Hickman. Sarah's first guitar was inspired by the music of the Partridge family. The influence of David Cassidy in her musical career has been a huge part of her journey, which has included a recording of his first hit, I Think I Love You. Her own music has been covered by fellow Texas musicians, including Willie Nelson. Sarah has won numerous awards and accolades, including the appointment as official Texas state musician. Her maternal grandmother would play the piano in New York theatres for silent films. Her grandfather played saxophone and clarinet in big swing bands. Sarah's parents were artists and she inherited their creative skills, publishing the Texas Musicians Colouring Book with her own hand-drawn portraits of musicians associated with the state. Her book is used in schools to teach children the history of Texas music. Following our conversation, Sarah successfully completed crowdfunding for the second book, and Volume 2 is currently in production. Sarah once described performing as not just glamorous and exciting, but a lot of hard work. You go on stage and this magic happens. You have to prep for it. To learn more about her remarkable journey, welcome Sarah Hickman. I'm so excited that you found me. Oh, it's fabulous to see you. You too. I feel like we could be sisters if my hair was dark and shorter. <laughs> we have an audience behind you. Her name is Twig. Hey, Twig! She's a year and three quarters, and she's my little my little pandemic baby. I love her so much. So, yeah, she's going to be back there chewing. Hopefully she won't make too much noise. But Sometimes she comes and sits in my lap, so you might see her head right here. And for those that are listening that can't see... Twig looks like a little fox. She's a fox terrier hyena mix. I don't know what she is, but she, <laughs> she's very smart and she's really sweet and she makes us laugh and we're grateful for that. So. Oh, she's delightful. Thank you. When you tell people that you're a David Cassidy fan and the impact he had on your life and on your career specifically, mm-hmm. what type of reaction do you get? At different stages in my life, I got different reactions, right? So... I'll start with when I was a kid growing up in Houston, uh, my neighbor across the street, Janine, so I would have been about seven, Janine was probably 13, and she was like the ringleader of our neighborhood. Um, So there was me, Janine, my sister, Jenny, my sister's best friend, Barb, my best friend, Charlotte, and a woman named Jane, well, not a woman, another teenager named Jane, and another teenager named Kathy. And we would put on performances of the Partridge family in the backyard, Janine's backyard, for our moms. And we would actually make tickets and sell them tickets for like a quarter each. And we would have a concession stand where our moms made popcorn and then we put it out there pretending like we were selling it, right? And then we would take the stereo outside and put the record on 
of the Partridge family. And I always got to be Chris, the drummer, which was very exciting because Janine always got to be David Cassidy, which was the plum position, right? Everybody wanted to be David. Um, nobody wanted to be Shirley, nothing against Shirley Jones, but she was the oldest. Nobody wanted to be Reuben Kincaid, although one of the little boys in our neighborhood was Reuben and it was pretty funny. I think he would actually put on a little suit and stuff. And um, I think my sister played tambourine. Um, maybe Kate, Kathy played Lori Partridge because she looked a lot like Lori Partridge. I loved it. And we would play along to the record, even if we didn't know how to play the instruments. We were really into it. We're singing. And we would make enough money that we could all get on our bikes afterwards and ride our bikes to Dairy Queen and get ice cream cones. And that was like, I felt like a real rock and roll star, right? We had to learn the songs. We performed the songs. We got paid for the songs. And then we got to go and treat ourselves. So to me, David Cassidy was like a win-win, right? You can't, <laughs> the songs were great. His voice was great. Yeah. I mean, he had, you could tell it's David too. You yeah. know, that's, Nobody sounded like him. I definitely think my first guitar was because of David Cassidy. I have no doubt. Because really? I, I think I got my first one at six. And my mom had had me doing piano lessons. And my piano teacher looked like Marge Simpson. She just had this, she didn't have blue hair, but she had this really tall beehive. And my lesson was in this little concrete room. And I would go in there. She was not, she wasn't, hey, hey, Sarah, it's time to play the piano. She wasn't like fun. She was like a taskmaster and she had this crazy hair and I was just terrified of her so I told my mom I don't I don't want to take piano lessons and my mom was like why not I was like I couldn't tell her because I didn't know who Mark Simpson was yet right I was just like I don't know she's freaky so my mom took me to the music store and I saw the guitars and I was like I want what David has I want a guitar yeah you know and I still have that guitar watching the Partridge family and you know looking and seeing what chords he was playing and then playing them on the guitar and learning their songs and you know, back then, 45 records or whole albums and putting them on, dropping the needle, listening, 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 practicing, practicing, practicing. It was exciting, you know, because you felt, I felt close to David. Like, I felt like I was in the band with him I, or he was teaching me stuff. I don't think there's anything greater than finding your first heroes and they impress on you and, and alter your life forever because now they're inside you in a really sweet way, you know, in an inspiring way. I don't think there's a greater gift that you can give people than to inspire them to be more of who they are or who they're meant to be or, or giving them a dream to become. I think that's amazing. What a gift. You know, he gave me. Yeah. So that that's what started it. Um, in fact, the first album I ever got in my whole life was a Partridge Family album, followed by a Three Dog Night album, Golden Biscuit, which I also love. My dad brought home one day as a surprise a David Cassidy album of just David Cassidy and I was, you know, cause there wasn't the internet back then. You didn't, yeah. you didn't really know about things, especially as a kid. So I would have been, you know, like I said, seven or eight and he came home and he had this brown paper bag and he pulled it out of the bag and I was, there's David Cassidy and I was like, <gasps> you know, ran upstairs, took the cellophane off. And so yes, David Cassidy as a kid, nobody was surprised because we all loved the Partridge family back then. Right. In fact, on Friday nights in Houston, Texas, growing up, we would watch The Brady Bunch, then The Partridge Family, then The Mary Tyler Moore Show, then The Bob Newhart Show. Then I got to go see David Cassidy perform in concert, and uh, I could not even believe it. My mom put us all in the station wagon. We went downtown Houston somewhere. I don't. It was a big venue. I'd, of course, never been there. Front row, dead center tickets. So I was sitting right in the middle 
out comes the band. Then out comes David Cassidy, and he's in this white jumpsuit, kind of Elvisy. It had fringe on the arms, and it had a you know like a uh, I don't know what you call that when it like ties up the front. It was quite sexy for me at seven or eight or whatever. And I think he might even have had white boots on. And he came out jumping around and singing, and I was just like my mouth fell open. I, I couldn't believe I was like twenty feet from him, and it was all little girls, right? We were all like. Ah! I just I couldn't believe it I was like I didn't get to meet him and I didn't get his autograph but it I, it felt like I was just in the palm of his hand the whole time anyway so I was really happy at that show I got this huge David Cassidy poster so huge I wish I still had it it was probably you know four feet by two feet or four feet by three feet and it was on my wall for a long time then in junior high, sadly, you know, the Partridge family kind of fell out of favor. Much like in the United States, um, girls and Girl Scouts, once they get to high school, they're not really digging Girl Scouts anymore, which is too bad. But um, so it was kind of uncool for a little bit, not to like David Cassidy. And then I got to high school and I went to a high school for performing and visual arts. It wasn't a snooty school. I mean, people... People weren't snarky or mean back then. Um, people were very supportive of whatever you liked, you know. So most of the kids I was hanging around with were into Led Zeppelin. And I was starting to get into Heart because it had two female leads. And I really loved that. And Nancy Wilson played guitar and I played guitar. But I would play Partridge Family songs and nobody would laugh at me. You know, they would they would join in or they would want to know the chords, you know. And then I went to college and it was fine there too. Nobody made fun of me. And then I graduated from college and I'd been playing music. Uh, I started when I was about six or seven and I won my first award when I was six or seven in a talent show at school. And then I just kept winning these talent shows, playing the guitar and singing songs I wrote. But when I moved to Dallas, after I graduated from the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, there was a radio station, it's still there, um, K-E-R-A, great station. It's now a talk radio station, but when I was there, it was all music all the time, and they supported a lot of local musicians. So they were the first people to play a song from my album before I even got picked up on a major label, which would have been in 1988, and that was highly unusual. Um, it was before the whole DIY thing started in the 90s. I was ahead of the game. I put together an album by myself and put it out myself. Because of that, KERA played one of my songs. It was a song for my father. And I pulled my car over. I heard it coming up on the radio. And I pulled my car over and I just cried and cried. I couldn't believe I was on the radio. Then KERA calls up and says, hey, we're doing a compilation uh, recording. And we're asking all these local musicians to do a cover song. So I said, I want to do I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family. And they went, okay, cool. And so my friend Josh Allen, who's an amazing musician, guitarist, he produced it. Uh, my boyfriend at the time, Marty Lester, was the engineer. And the band that played on it with me uh, was called Spot, formerly Mildred. A bunch of really talented young men. We recorded it in an afternoon. And Josh had this hilarious idea. Sorry, you can see how hot it is here. I'm sweating. And I'm in my house. It's a lot. Um, Josh said, okay, at the end of the song... He's from New York. At the end of the song, I think you should maybe uh, say, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And I was like, what? Why would I do that? That's No, that's sacrilegious. I can't do that. And he's like, yes, do it, do it, do it. So we did it. And then the very last part goes into this kind of elongated retard. So I'm going, I hate you, I hate you, I hate And we have all these harmonies. And then the very last thing is we go, I love 
it kind of had this hilarious little ending to it, which to this day, I'm still glad he made us do that because it is really funny and unexpected. And it's a very different version from the Partridge family's version. Yeah. But the rest of it's very true to form. And I always, man, the people that wrote the songs for the Partridge family is so talented, really I just, their songs to this day are still really catchy. Um, I have a friend named Jim Stevens who just has been recording different Partridge Family songs because he loves them too and putting them out on his own albums and he does beautiful renditions. So, you know, if you love the Partridge Family as a kid, especially David Cassidy, he never goes out of favor. I was really sad when he died because I was so sure I was going to meet him. I went on a date with Mickey Dolans from The Monkees in LA who played the drums for monkeys yes. and I kept getting closer to David Cassidy and we would be on the same radio station, but at different times, I even have a recording he did that I can put on my phone message that says, Hey, uh, this is David Cassidy and, uh, can't get to the phone right now, but you know, it was like, ah, I would put that on. I still have it. And sometimes I put it on and people freak out when they call like, how did you get David Cassidy to record that? But no, I sadly did not get to meet him in person. I just wanted to go back to what you were saying about your version of, I think I love you. And I was surprised when it was, I hate you. I hate you. And I said, why is she doing that? But I think it's a superb tribute to his legacy thank you i i do too i hope that he heard it i don't know if he did but uh i'm sure he got inundated with people covering his stuff but i did get to meet tony romeo i was in the recording studio in los angeles at this place that's defunct but it was called power tracks and tony romeo was coming in because i don't know if he was coming to meet uh somebody there at the studio but he walked in into the main um, section of the studio and I was out there talking to a drummer or something. And he walked in and I said, oh, hi, I'm Sarah. And he said, hey, I'm Tony. Tony. And I said, oh, what, what's your last name? He said, Tony Romeo. And I went, oh, I know who you are. I love your music. Oh, my God, you're so talented. And he like he couldn't believe he was like, you know who I am. I was like, of course I know who you are. I can't even believe I'm getting to meet you. And this was before cell phones, because I certainly would have done like 20 selfies with him. But I was like, I said, can I hug you? He's like, sure. And I was hugging him. And I was like, thank you for your gift of music. And I just love everything. You he And he and his brothers had a band for a while called the Romeo. Was it called Romeo's? The Romeo Brothers or the Romeo's. But anyway, they had that song called... Um, is it I Can Hear Your Heartbeat? They did a song that the Partridge Family covered. But anyway, I had their 45 singles. So I, so I got kind of close to David. <laughs> that is a superb story. Thank yeah. you. The songs that Tony Romeo wrote, and I was talking to someone the other day about it. Yeah. And they said, well, because of him, they became a songwriter. Yeah. His inspiration on his He's lyrics. very, I, I don't think, I certainly don't think, you know, my very First influence, again, was the Partridge Family, followed by the Carpenters, followed by John Denver. Um, I thought all three of those had just profoundly beautiful songs, very catchy songs. So they definitely all influenced me, but uh, definitely the Partridge Family <laughs> influenced me first. Did you yeah. ever find, as your career evolved, that certain aspects of Partridge Family music came through in your work? That's a really good question. I do believe. Um, are you a songwriter? Oh no. Oh, okay. I'm not. So well, good. I always like I'm to ask. Fascinated how people like you can write a song. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of fascinated by it too, and I've been doing it uh, 52 years. When you're a songwriter, and I don't know about other songwriters, but I'm going to guess this is pretty true of most of them. There's different ways songs come about. At least for me, uh, sometimes I do what's called spurt writing. 
which means all of a sudden I have this idea and the song is all there. It's almost all complete. Um, and then I, and then I have the song and I even know what the chords are going to be, blah, blah, blah. Then the second kind I have is dream writing where I'm in a dream while I'm asleep and I can see myself on stage. I'm on stage. I'm singing this song and then I wake up really quick and I write it down. And then the third way is co-writing, you know, with other people and making time, sitting down with someone, coming up with concepts. Now, uh, there's times when I write a song and I swear it sounds like a song somebody else has already written. So then I do searches, you know, like, cause I'm thinking, did I just psychologically not realize this is someone else's song and I'm reinterpreting it? And of course, all songs are from other songs. There's just no way you can escape it. But um, I definitely know that... Uh, there are tidbits like I don't think um, I don't think my choruses would have been as catchy. And I definitely think bridges are a part where sometimes I think that those are reflections from my love of the Partridge family, the chord progressions or the way I put words together. Um, and most people think I'm kind of a quirky songwriter, which is fine with me. I'd rather be quirky than just be normal and ordinary. But um I definitely think um, being engaged as a young person and recreating the Partridge Family music left an indelible mark on how I approach songwriting, um, whether I'm aware of it or not. But as far as having something where I think, oh, this is definitely from Albuquerque or one of their other songs, I don't know that that's happened. But now that you've said that, I'm going to start. <laughs> I'm going to start paying attention when I'm performing and listening to my music and thinking. Oh my gosh, that's from that song, blah, 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 you know, because that, they might be there and I'm not paying attention to it. Yeah. Because you've written some songs. I remember once there was an interview I read where you wrote a love letter to your insomnia. Yes. I but did. you've also and written about other personal s subjects yes. as well. I wonder if you find songwriting a form of therapy for you. You know, uh, I would say that's yes. I would. Well, I would say I'm very transparent. I think the reason most people, if I may say, enjoy me or like me is because I'm pretty much the same person on stage as I am talking to you. I don't put on a persona and I talk openly about things that are important to me, whether it's my insomnia, which I've had for 30 years now. And um, the reason I wrote that song, which is called To a Maddening Ghost, is because I was about seven years into my insomnia and I thought, Maybe if I write a letter and personify my insomnia, I write this letter in a song, it will make it go away, um, which didn't. But a lot of people love that song. So I got a good song out of it. And, uh, you know, as far as other things, yes, I've talked about the death penalty. I've talked about mm, rape. I've talked about abortion. I've talked about all kinds of things that are difficult for people to talk about. And of course, I've talked about love and my children and my mom. I have a song for my mother, so songs for my grandparents, songs for my great aunts. I, have, I, I think the only song I've written that wasn't true, per se, or based on something true is a song called Too Fast, which I wrote after I heard a, a woman named Christine Lavin performing. Uh, we did a show together in Dallas and she was so funny and so intriguing and interesting. I, I, I went home that night and I thought I want to be like Christine Lavin. So I made up this whole scenario and it's, it's a, it's a tongue in cheek, pretty funny song and people loved it. So that one's not true. But everything else I've written about is true. <laughs> right. Did you always believe that you were going to be an entertainer? Yes. I, uh, when I was about 
when I was about four, I think my mom was giving me a bath, four or five, and uh, I got out of the bath and she was drying me off. And this sounds so pretentious right now, but I said, mommy, I think I'm an angel. And I was sent here to make people happy. And my mom just smiled and said, mm-hmm, sure, uh-huh, I hear you. <laughs> but I don't know why I felt that way, but I've carried that feeling my whole life, even though, of course, I've made mistakes and done dumb things and been unintentionally upsetting to other people. Uh, in the in the back of my mind the whole time is, what can I do in this situation that brings joy and love? And definitely in my music and my art, I have always tried to find the silver lining. Uh, so. Being a songwriter is just, it is therapeutic. It is because it's a way to work out things in your mind, in your heart, and even your physical being. Like sometimes I can tell when I want to write a song, my body is like electrified, like it's time and I have to go find a pen. But now that we have iPhones and stuff, I can just record it into my phone, mm -hmm. which is great, but also awful because I have a million notes in my phone that I need to clean out. You mentioned about it being therapeutic because wasn't there a time when you would go into psychiatric uh, units and help through your music to provide therapy to to patients that's a form of angel healing oh thank you louise uh, yes i in um when would it have been 1987 perhaps 86 or 87 i i went through a very traumatic period and was very suicidal. And I met uh, a woman named Marjorie Clive, who had a group called Arts for People. And Arts was an acronym for Artistic Recreational Therapy Services. And uh, she brought in musicians, theater folks, dancers, and artists. Um, and we would volunteer our time uh, to go into, as you said, psych units, um, burn units, head injury units. Um, working with Alzheimer patients and the elderly um, and working in um, uh, pediatrics and also um, in infant units, preemie, with preemies. Someone said, you should work with Marjorie because of your depression and it'll help you feel better. And they were not kidding. I loved it so much. I got to work with all kinds of people. I, I started doing art therapy too. Um, I was also working a lot in the homeless community. They used to have a thing here in the U.S. called Mental Health and Mental Retardation, MHMR. And that's where they would pick up homeless people who had um, problems and they would put them in this location. And I would go there and, and work with them and sing with them. And uh, I learned so much about how music could transform people. Um, in fact, the very first time I ever had that experience, I was 14 myself. And I had a teacher at the High School for Performing and Visual Arts who came to me and said, uh, I got a phone call from a teenage psych unit and I think you would be perfect to go in there and sing for these kids. And I was like, I don't want to do that. That sounds terrifying. And she said, no, I think, I think you'd be perfect for it. I think you're compassionate and I think your music will reach these kids. So the day I agreed to go and I went, there was actually a, uh, a lockdown because one of the kids had thrown a chair through a window so I went into the facility, they locked it down, and I was locked in this room with, I don't know, maybe 18 kids my age, and I was terrified. Um, but the minute I started singing and playing guitar, they all settled down, and they sang along, and, and it took away my fear, and it, it instilled in me this, this beauty of 
that making music wasn't just for me. It wasn't just a way to talk about my 14-year-old feelings and stuff. It was a way to engage others to feel better about themselves. And that was really, um, I think, a turning point for me later on when I joined Arts for People and started working with people. And out of Arts for People, I got a lot of songs um, dealing with people I had met who were having a difficult time and the and the joy I received by working with them. I mean, granted, they were getting joy too, but it, it it's it's almost more joyous for me to know that I'm helping someone in their healing process. I think than for them to actually receive it. But not just joyous for you. You must have learned a lot about yourself. I did learn a lot about myself. I learned that um, sitting with someone who's dying and singing to them isn't scary. It's it's more of it's more of, and this will sound odd, but it's a small miracle. Yeah. You know that I'm there at that time with them, and they're transitioning. And I've just met them, uh, but the comfort of me being there and singing their favorite song or just playing the guitar. Um, and once they've passed, especially if there's other people in the room, it helps them to grieve. It helps them to feel like they're not alone. I, music just, I'm going to start crying. But yeah. music has that ability to, yeah. to, to lift people's spirits, even in the hardest of times, you know? Yeah. So I learned that, um, like I'm crying right now, but I would, I've never cried with a patient. I've never cried per se with nurses and doctors, although I've seen um, people really affected, especially in burn units. That's the hardest. That and head, head injury patients. I had to finally stop working with head injury patients because it's very difficult. You're, you're with someone who can't respond. They can't blink their eyes. They can't do anything. And many of those patients would have photographs on the wall of their previous life and how happy they were and all the things they love to do, horseback riding or hanging out with their grandkids, and here they were immobilized. So singing to them was very um, difficult because I couldn't tell if it was helping them or it was too loud for them. Or, so I had to pull out of that one. But working um, in psych units, working with the first AIDS patients was profound because nobody wanted to go in and sit with them. Nobody wanted to touch them. And this was in their, you know, 80s. And uh, I would go in and hug them. I would go in and ask them what their favorite music was. I would sometimes I just go in and sit and listen because they were lonely. And many of these people were very, very sick and dying. And they had been isolated and abandoned by their friends and family. So sometimes it was just me and the doctors and nurses that spent any time with them at all before they passed. So that was really, um, I, I made friends with people I would never have known otherwise. That is such a beautiful thing to do. Everything you said when you were a little girl to your mother, that's why. You know, um, there's a song I have called Aurora, which I wrote after um, I had gone in to work with an aphasia patient. Uh, I was on the uh, Parkland Hospital or Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas, and uh, I was in the day room working with these patients. Um doing slight movement stuff to help them get their movement back and singing songs, etc. And the nurse came out and said, can you come to someone's room because they're immobilized and can't come out? And I was like, sure. So I went in and it was a woman who'd had a stroke. And she, this was my first time to meet someone with aphasia. She could think, but she couldn't speak what she wanted to say. So it's, it's very frustrating. And she was laying in the bed and I went and asked if I could sit on the side of the bed to sing for her. 
And so she kind of gave me a thumbs up with her good arm. And I sat there and sang a song or two. And then she motioned with her good arm for me to come close to her face. So I put my guitar down on the other bed and I leaned in and I said, you know, take your time. I know it's difficult, but I'm not going anywhere. And she started to kind of growl these words. She was trying to say these words and, and it was just a big mumbly mess. And I said, just keep trying. I'm going to listen really hard. And finally she said, I love you. And I just thought, hey, my gosh. So I went home that day and it took me a couple months, but I wrote her a song called Aurora that starts out about a young girl going into this hospital room to sing for this woman. And in the end, I become that woman. Someone else comes in to sing for me. So it's like the circle of life thing. Oh, Sarah. <laughs> oh. I have to get a tissue. Hold on. <laughs> Keep talking. That's okay. I'll send you a check for all this therapy you're doing with me right now. <laughs> oh, you are an earth angel. I'm going to say that. Thank you. You're an angel to ask me these questions. I mean, well, I didn't mean to upset you in any way. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, let me clarify. These are what I call happy tears. You know, I think we go through life and, uh, you know, we all have a smile on our face and we're all trying to be brave. But mm. I think crying and showing fear and talking about your feelings is just as important as being happy. There's not one that's better or worse. You have to have both, you know. Yeah. As my friend Colin Boyd said in a song, you have to have the rain to have rainbows. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> you're going to set me crying now. <laughs> Here, let me bring the tissue box. I'll hand it right over to you in this Zoom call. There it is. <laughs> but it does go to show that music isn't just about playing to 90,000 people at one time. It's not about playing to mass stadia. That is very satisfying it's very rewarding it's wonderful to know so many people love you i wondered what your first experience was playing to a large stadium mm, well uh i think the first big time was with someone from your neck of the woods who is billy bragg billy bragg i was on tour with him and he was a huge influence on me i would say david cassie was my first influence Hart was my second influence well john denver so David Cassidy, John Denver Hart, and then Billy Bragg, because uh, when we were on tour, I had never seen anybody talk as much as he did before he got to a song. You know, like I was always kind of like chirpy and a little Texas gal and, you know, right. but I was really shy. And when I would, you know, because I would open for Billy and then Billy would come out and he would just have the audience like right here like like almost like this giant group hug he was so powerful and his thing of course is about politics and humanitarianism and how we treat each other and I felt like he was a step up for me like like now he was engaging in something that I hadn't even thought of which was the world and politics and how we affect one another and and how my buying this object at Walmart is affecting child slave labor in in indonesia right mm -hmm. so after the tour with him <laughs> my music started taking more of a political bent because i started getting more engaged in 
how my music could affect people to think about things like the death penalty or abortion or women's rights or children's rights or slavery because there's still modern day slavery. And um, so I'm really grateful to Billy because not only was he taking these really difficult subjects, but he was turning them into these beautiful pop songs, right? So you, you're singing along. Help save the youth of America. Help save the children of the world. Right? You know, but he's he's got this catchy melody going on. You're singing along, but he's also like anthematic about what's important. And I was like, wow, he's so cool. <laughs> Didn't you open with Bruce Springsteen as well? Yes, I did a um, thing at a... Uh, it was a Bronco Bowl in Dallas, and it was kind of this weird secret thing. Somebody called and said, hey, can you come? Just you. You don't need band. And open for somebody. And I was like, okay. So I went to the Bronco Bowl, and I, I went out and sang whatever, 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And then all of a sudden out came Bruce Springsteen, and he did a solo show. I don't know what the deal was. I don't know if it was a private car. I don't know. All I remember is... By then I was packing up and moving out towards the front and I was like, what? So, but the biggest, biggest thing I ever played to, uh, to, in answer to your question, which I did not answer, I apologize, was the first time it was a big audience for me was with Billy Bragg in Atlanta at the Martin Luther King Center, which I believe had just opened up and they built a temporary stage. And I would guess I don't know how many thousands and thousands, maybe there was eight or 10,000 people there. And that was, that was big for me. Um, then later on, I was in a group called Domestic Science Club and we were a three-part girl group and we sang a couple times for the World Cup, the World Soccer Cup in 1994. And we were out in California and we played for 90,000 people. And that was so ridiculous. It just looked like little pin dots. You couldn't even tell they were people. Except they asked us to sing the Bolivian national anthem and the national anthem of America because uh, that's who was playing was America and Bolivia. So we came out and we started with the Bolivian national anthem and all the Bolivians went crazy. They were singing and crying and they had their faces painted and it was like, wow. And then we sang the national anthem and the Americans were like, eh, whatever, you know, <laughs> get to the game. We don't care. And it was like, wow, what a difference in passion about that. So when you saw David mm -hmm. back in the early 70s, coming to the height of his fame, yeah. when you then played to a huge audience, could you put yourself in his shoes and say, wow, all these people have come to see me? Where I'm... do you go from there? I mean, you're going to come down from such a high mm -hmm. and then you're going to be probably all alone, the adrenaline's going to be pumping through every vein in your body. What, from a performer's point of view, is it really like to play to such vast audiences? And how do you feel afterwards? That's a really good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. I've been doing this a long time. Um, I think more so than the amount of people, it's how the people are responding. So I could be in front of, let's say, an average of two or 3,000 people. And if they're really into it, it's phenomenal because, um, like, for example, when I played with Richie Havens or I opened with Nancy Griffith on tour, they would play pretty pretty good-sized theaters. Mm -hmm. um, being And I'm going to talk about this because I think this exemplifies it best. If When you're the opening act, 
people aren't coming to see you. They're coming to see the headliner, right? So it's a difficult spot to be in because a lot of times people don't want you up there or they want you to get off as fast as possible. Um, I was really blessed in that all the people I toured with, even Billy Bragg's people, were um, very supportive. And I and I want to give myself a little credit there because I think of my songs and because of my persona on stage. So getting that kind of um, response where people enjoy you and they don't even know who you are is more of a high than performing in front of people that already know and love you and have already bought your records, right? Because to me, that shows um, how talented I or anybody opening, more so than people that already love me. So if I can convince people that don't know me and haven't heard my music to like me in 30 or 40 minutes, that's the biggest high because then that says to me that what I have to say is valid and important and 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 good, you know, and, and worthy. Um, and I would say as a performer of the afterwards, when you're all high and excited and you get off stage and you go out with the band or you go out by yourself with friends or you go, I've gone bowling with fans. That's always been fun. You, At least for me, I have to do stuff afterwards because your adrenaline is pumping, right? You've been on stage, you've been sharing this stuff. I'm, I'm, I try to be very physical and present. So that's a lot of energy you're exuding and people are throwing energy back at you. So you've got more energy than you know what to do with it. Well, at the same time, you're depleted because you've given all this love and energy out, right? So um, going out afterwards and kind of breaking down that energy, reflecting on it or getting it out by hanging out with friends or going bowling, for example, helps you kind of bring that adrenaline back down. Um, and the opposite of that is when you go to perform somewhere and there's only three people there um, and you're in a new t town, you're in a new place and there's bad weather and you go and three people show up and you have a choice there. You can go, I suck. I've failed. Or you can go, wow, three people showed up and they are here for a show and I'm going to give them the best show I can. And, and that's what I always try to do. And, and, a lot of times I would just go sit on the front of the stage and then I'd say, come closer. And they would come sit. So it was more like a little private event, right? Just mm -hmm. for them. Like, look how lucky we are. There's only four of us here and I'm going to sing just to you and tell me your names and then I'll dedicate a song to you. So it becomes more of a, um, a relationship. You know, there's, it's all about relationships anyway, but there's something really sweet about that because you could give up and go, well, I've failed. Or you can go, this night isn't as good as the 90,000 people night per se, but it's more exciting because I've got these people here with me and they want to be here with me. Yeah. And I'm so honored, right? Yeah, it's more of an intimate relationship. Then. Yeah, and that, you know, that's when house concerts started happening again. Yeah. I love house concerts because every single person there has come, not for the pie and the coffee, you know, they're there for the fellowship. But they're there to hear you and, and you, you know, there's no big lights and there's no big microphones. And stuff. You're just in a room with people the way music was intended to be, which is storytelling, right? You're passing along stories. That's how song tellers became. And so I'm in that tradition of song tellers and more so than a, than a Beyonce or somebody, right, that, that's at the top of their game um, in a different way. I try not to think like, well, Beyonce's successful and I'm down here. Like I'm a C grade musician. I feel like we're both successful. We do different things. Um, she, you know, everybody knows her name, 
I'm not a, nobody's ever all going to know my name and that's okay because that kind of keeps it fresh for me. If everybody already knows me, what's the challenge, right? I already, there's no place to go. But look (laughs) at all the awards and accolades that have landed in your lap that have have come, come your way. That is success. Thank you. Well, I think the greatest success, and this sounds super corny, but it's my kids, you know, and, and the fact that I found a partner and a husband who likes me, like, no matter what, like, if I'm depressed, or I'm happy, or I'm silly, or I'm overweight, or I'm, you know, freaking out, or I'm mad, he is right there with me, you know, he's, he likes Sarah inside, he likes all of me, and that's a blessing. And then my kids are just, I, you know, they're phenomenal people. I couldn't, I couldn't ask for two better kids. I really love them and I'm proud of them. So, you know, when you look back on your life and you think about your mistakes and your, and your rewards, um, it all comes together and, and people don't have to have children. I'm just saying for me that that's my greatest glory is the fact that I got to have two children that I know of. Maybe I was asleep and I had twins. I don't know. <laughs> Is it always difficult for any entertainer to find their soulmate? Yes. yes. I, I would say it was. It was more. It was more. It was harder for people who dated me <laughs> because I was like a kid in a candy shop for a long time. Wow. Um, because I just if it's difficult for you to find someone who loves you for you. Yes, I think, well, you know, um, as you could see, I'm pretty cheery and uh, outgoing mm-hmm. and I don't have a problem chatting. Um, but, um, you know, I think in terms of, of being a songwriter, there is a part of you that's therapeutic. If, if you're a really good songwriter, you're going to reflect on who you are and what you're doing in the world and why you're doing it and what's important to you. You have to be able to do that to be a songwriter. And part of that with that introspection, hopefully comes growth, right? So for a long time, (laughs) I had growth in certain areas, but I would not say in relationships I had growth because I will go back to the fact I was a kid in a candy shop and that everywhere I went, there was people interested in me. Yes, because, at you know, when you come off of a major label and you're out touring in the world, you're going to meet a lot of interesting people from radio programmers to, uh, club owners to people in your band, people in other people's band. Um, so I would, I would say I was not very good at being in relationships. I loved getting into relationships. I loved all my partners, but then I would be somewhere and I would see somebody else and go, Oh, that person's cool. And then they would, they would feel that and go, Oh, Sarah thinks I'm cute. And then they would come on to me and then I would go bye bye. So, so, and I would go over here to so, so, you know, so, but part of that is, I don't feel bad about it. I feel bad for the people whose feelings I hurt, but I think that was part of my journey. You know, um, men get glorified for having these rock star lives, right? They can have so many partners and women and boyfriends, whatever they want. And people think, wow, he's so cool. Look, he's dated all these people. Women, on the other hand, we still get that it's kind of slutty or loose or whatever. And I think that's ridiculous. I was a person exploring my life and my sexuality and my music and and you know as I've gotten older and when I met my husband Lance uh, he instilled in me higher ground you know he showed me that I didn't have to chase around and, and meet new people to find happiness I had it all along he sounds a wise man <laughs>
<laughs> he is wise. <laughs> is it important for people in the public eye to have that foundation, to have that stability in your life? And you've got all this fame. I don't know how much fame I have, but you're being very sweet about it. <laughs> well, all your awards and your accolades and the albums that you've released and there's your songwriting which has been covered by other artists including Willie Nelson people respect you and it, I suppose it would be easy for it all to go to your head so do mm-hmm. you need that stability and foundation of a secure home life yes and you know what that is very accurate I think part and I know I know for a fact the reason I didn't have that stability in other relationships is because a I came from a divorced family that had a traumatic ending my parents had a uh, terrible ending and you know seeing how your parents interact especially a child of the 70s you know and then their divorce um I didn't know what two people together forever looked like so uh, and my husband comes from the complete opposite his parents stayed married until his father died and no big drama he would probably say I, I don't want to use the word boring but compared to my life my traumatic life, his life was pretty boring and stayed. So he brought a lot of stability to me, which at first was like really boring, like, but I brought some excitement and enthusiasm to him. Not that he didn't have it, but a little different from mine. So together we've learned how to be stable together. So he's raised me up through menopause, through through labels, all the stuff that you go through. You know, that kind of trauma. Again, it's learning how to reflect on that trauma and how to utilize that trauma as a songwriter and and how to how to break it down in songs so that people can relate to it. Yes. Um, It's not only therapeutic, of course, for the creator, but for the listener. One thing I wanted to ask you was a story that I read somewhere about you were playing a small club in Kansas where the manager said someone from Electra Records was going to become coming to see you. Yes. And the audience gave you a standing ovation. And he Well, said, yes, let me fill you in on that whole story because... <laughs> what I'm interested in is the response you gave him, which I thought was very visionary. You said... Thank you. The only thing you can't change is me. And I wondered if that was something that bothered you, that you could be sucked into the vacuum of the industry and what would be put out there would not be authentically you. Uh, Again, this was before the internet. This was before cell phones. And I was on my very first tour with a band called Killbilly, and they were a punk bluegrass band. Really fun. They called me up one day. This would have been in 88, 1988. And they said, hey, you have an album out, so you get press. Now, mind you, this was an album I put out by myself. And um, and it was amazing. I was getting press because I was very tenacious. And <laughs> I would send my record off in the mail with a cover letter or little gifts and stuff and say, please write. And people would. They would write. Um, and they said, and because we're a band, we can get booked in clubs. So you'll get the press about your album and then we'll get the club bookings and then we can tour together. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Okay. So it was me and like eight guys in a van driving around through the Midwest. And we ended up in Lawrence, Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, or Kansas City, Kansas, one of those places. And um, I had gone to a phone booth to call my manager about something. And he said, hey, the vice president of Electra Records is coming down from New York to see you. 
tonight at this club. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Because when I was a kid, all I wanted to be on was Electra Records. That to me was the creme de la creme of artistic labels, right? Mm-hmm. That's where all the great songwriters went. So um, I went out and bought a little dress and I got some new earrings and it was with my very first credit card. And I went to the club and I got there and I was doing sound check. And the band sound checked, and then um, it was my turn to play. And there was, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 people there, including the bartender. And before I started, I said, Hey, I know y'all don't know who I am. My name is Sarah. I'm so glad you're here to hear me and Kill Billy. But I want to tell you something miraculous is happening, which is tonight someone from Electra Records is coming to see me. So if you could just Act like you love every song, even if you don't like it. Could you just please clap after every song? So when this man comes, he'll he'll think you guys love my music. And, the, and everybody's laughing like, sure, sure, sure. And I said, and we'll probably know who it is because I bet you if he's from New York, he's wearing all black. So I start playing, I don't know, maybe in my second or third song. And they're clapping. And, they're, and sure enough, this tall, lanky guy in all black comes and sits in the very back of the club. <laughs> And then after every song, they were like freaking out. The audience was like clapping and screaming for more. And even the bartender's like, this is amazing. So I'm up there beaming and start another song. Same thing. They go crazy. Finally, I finished my set. I got a standing ovation. I get off the stage and I, I know, I know it's him. I know it has to be him. But I go over to the bar and the bartender's like, that was so great. Da, da, da. Here's a drink. I was like, thank you. And, uh, this gentleman gets up and comes over and says, are you Sarah Hickman? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, you know, would you mind coming and sitting with me? I'm from Electra Records. And I was like, sure. And I'm paraphrasing. But uh, basically, we went and sat down and, and he bought shots of tequila for us. And he said he wanted to sign me because he'd never seen an audience react to <laughs> musician that way <laughs> and I was like well you know it just happens and then he was saying something and of course inside I was like freaking out I was so happy and my friend Mark Rubin had come over he he was the bass player in Killbilly really great guy still friends with him and he came over he was kind of like my big brother he was just kind of standing next to me like some hulky bodyguard and uh Howard Thompson the A&R guy who I love to this day great 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 guy he says, you know, I'd like to sign you, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, that sounds great, but you can never change anything about me. I am I am who I am or whatever I said. And he was like, okay. So, um, yeah, of course, then when I got on Electra, and Howard was a great champion. He he totally got me. I think he, he understood me more than I understood me at the time. Nice. Uh, but the president of the label, I... I could go on there ad nauseum, but um, yeah, so things were changing. They were trying to sexualize me as they do and get me to sing these other songs that had nothing to do with what I was doing. And so, of course, I got dropped. You know, I I wasn't fitting the mold and uh, that was really painful. But to this day, I'm still glad that I stuck to my guns. And, um, you know, what would have happened if I had changed? Um, I would have become an 80 or 90 year old woman and looked back and thought, I sold out. You know, I I changed who I was just to stay on a label. And I'm proud of myself because I I gave up the things that could have made me really famous and, and full of fortune because I knew that that would just lead to misery. 
at some way. So I'm I'm glad I can hold my head high and say, yeah, that wasn't a pretty time, but I'm I'm glad I stuck to my guns and and I continued my career by myself and with other labels. But um, how many times have we seen very talented young artists get manipulated by the industry and just sold down the river just to make mm-hmm. those few extra bucks? Exactly. And and they don't. You know, it's interesting. When I got signed to Electra, I had been on Wyndham Hill for one album with some other folk singers, and had done a tour with those folks, and that was interesting. Um, but being on Electra, I felt like I'd found a family. Now that was my feeling. Like the first thing I did was I asked Howard for a complete list of everybody at the label, which I don't know was like 120 people or something, including the people in the mailroom. I wanted their names too. I wrote a letter to every single person at the label to tell them thank you for having me on the label. <laughs> Um, which is the only time anybody's ever done that that I know of. Um, but that's that I felt like this is amazing. What a gift you guys are giving me. And I want to do my best and I want to know everybody at the label. So when I come up to New York, I can say hi, or if I'm in Los Angeles, I can say hi to you. Um, but it wasn't a family. It's a business, right? It's a bank. And so if you're not making the kind of music that makes them bank or makes them money, they don't care. They're going to drop you. Or if you're not, artistically pleasing them the way they want you to they're going to drop you so yeah i got dropped because i didn't play the game quite right and that was that that was one of my top five most horrific moments in my life just feeling like a big loser like i wasn't good enough and i wasn't making enough money for people but once i got through that pain and a lot of other miraculous things happened i realized that that was just the path i was on that was the journey for me to get me to where i am right now which is talking to you can I wouldn't have gotten you? to talk to you if I'd gone the other way. Well, you wouldn't be the woman you are today. No, I would not. I'd be somebody else. I'd probably have fake boobs, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you know, they, would have, they would have controlled every aspect of your life. And I've seen other, uh, um, you know, I think that's like with K-pop, that whole thing where young young men are committing suicide. It's because it's not about the joy of making music. It's about It's about making money. And these kids' lives don't matter. And, you know, I remember seeing women my age who were on the cusp of getting super famous and also getting dropped or being told they were too fat or being told, you know, that it was just horrible. I would I would see what it what it did to these other women and it broke my heart. And um, so I didn't want to be like that. And I've certainly had moments, of course, of great doubt and my kids can attest to that. But, you know, I think that's just part of being an artist is the self-doubt and, and the questioning of the business because it is a very manipulative business and you have to be able to speak your truth and stand up to it. And that's not always easy. Can you understand how frustrated David would have felt that he often said, you know, it was lonely at the top, but it was a lot lonely at the bottom and how he was manipulated by the industry mm-hmm. and yet when he wanted to branch out and show to people look this is the musician i am this is the songwriter i am this is the producer i am nobody would accept him yes and you know what i have to say about that i think you know i, I remember seeing him in tv shows not as keith partridge or david mm. cassidy but acting a part and i could almost feel it coming off of him that sorrow and the thing that he and i have in common um, is we were both young when we hit our peak in terms of of what the industry deems success, right? So 
Um, he was in his early 20s. I was in my mid-20s. Um, you're suddenly hit with all this money and all this travel and all these people wanting your time and you're doing interviews. People are taking your photos. You've got stylists and makeup artists. You've got people picking out your clothes. You, you know, you can't help but feel like, this is amazing. You know, you, you can't help but love it. It's, it's, it's a, it's a treat. It's a, it's a life change. And, um, and then you've got managers and you've got business managers and you've got accountants and you've got lawyers. And so you've got this whole team of people working and I'm doing air quotes with you. They're going to work with you as long as you're bringing home the bacon. Right. So you're suddenly everywhere. You're on every magazine. People want to want to be with you. And then suddenly if that stops or even if it starts dribbling away, it's it's difficult to return to being a quote unquote normal person because you've reached this tantamount place that very few people get to go, right? You dream about it and you work towards it and then it happens and it's like, nobody can tell you what it's like till you've been there. So it is lonely at the top. It is lonely at the bottom. He is so right because what I've learned from it is when you're experiencing all that success, you're surrounded by other people who are doing everything they can to help you stay successful for their own gain, right? I mean, and some of these people are your friends or they like you and they want to help you. That, that, that's true too. But the minute you fall from grace, for whatever reason, your music's out of favor or something happens, the label drops you, like in my case, um, you, you've kind of been bred to think that, um, that you're all that, that you're, that you're someone really special and people really love you. And then the rug gets pulled out from under you and you have nobody to talk to about it because um, like I remember talking to Sean Colvin just slightly about it or other people, other women that I've known, you know, um, Eliza Gilkison talked about it. My friend Terry Hendricks has talked about it. You have to remember that you're enough. And if you don't have that foundation, as you were talking about earlier, or that central place of going, it's, it's the worst place to be because no one else understands that getting on a tour bus and then driving all night and getting somewhere and then going and doing a sound check and then getting all made up and doing some interviews and then going on stage and performing and then getting back on a bus and going somewhere else. And, you know, people are like, oh, it's so glamorous. It's really hard work. It's really fun. But you don't have people you can talk to about it except other people in the field and everybody's working. So it's not like you can go hang out with them and have a beer. I mean, sometimes you can. So when you fall from grace, you are really alone. You've lost your team. You've lost your label. You've lost um, favor with audiences because now they're on to the next thing. And if you don't have other talents or other people in your life who love you for you, it's a very lonely place to be. And I can understand why a lot of people turn to drugs and alcohol and sex or food because, um, that becomes your friend and then it becomes an addiction. And then as we know, a lot of people die from those addictions. And um, I don't know if there's therapists out there that work specifically with famous people who are no longer famous in that way, but there should be because it is very hard. You know, you can't talk to your everyday friends about it because it feels like you're not like you're bragging, but it feels like you're, you're talking about really lofty things that have happened only to you. And some people want to know about it. But it's it's not something you can just share with people lightly because they're not going to understand what, you know, um, recouping is. They're not going to understand what perpetuity is. They're not going to understand what doing a jingle is. They're not going to understand 
what um, publishing is compared to copyright. So it's it's things that are kind of heady. And if you don't understand the business and the words I just talked about, then you're even for a worse fall because people will steal money from you or steal your publishing yeah. or steal your copyrights. And then you're really screwed. Like a lot of the old blues musicians who lost everything because they didn't know. Or like Buddy Holly got paid a dollar, right, for all his copyright. Yeah. That kind of thing. So there's a lot to lose when you become famous. Not so much to gain, but you have to be on the lookout because you're going to lose it all if you're not careful. Well, fame can condemn you to a life of pain. Yes, and I think David was in a lot, a lot, a lot of pain. Again, I didn't know him personally, and I didn't read the book that you spoke of. But, um, yeah, I feel like he... I feel like, um, especially in his case where he was adored by a bunch of screaming girls, you know, and everywhere he went, even on the TV show, girls were screaming and wanting to be with them. And then all of a sudden that all goes away. And that's what your, that's what your persona is based on, not on who you are as a human being, but on what you've been. Um, it's hard to find your way back to being who you were and who you're becoming because now you've lost it all. So who do, what do you do? And it's embarrassing. You know, when I got dropped, it was embarrassing. I felt like everybody in Dallas, everybody in the music community was probably thinking I was has-been and dumb and untalented. I even got one letter after I got dropped that was really mean um, that I've never forgotten. It it hurt my heart so much. It was the meanest. I, and you're the first person I've ever talked to about it. And I've always, and it was unsigned. So I'm assuming it's a friend of mine. But they just ripped into me about how I didn't deserve to be on a label and I wasn't good anyway. And it was time that I found out the truth, how horrible I was. And that, on top of just being dropped, was like, oh, who am I? Why, why am I so terrible? And I had to dig my way up. So I'm sure David, who was massively more famous than I will ever be, that, that loss of self is so painful and so, so lonely. It is I should write him a song called Lonely at the Bottom. Now that you say that, I'm writing that down. Lonely at the Bottom. Because I felt for him. I think that's part of why I wanted to meet him, too. Um, not so much because he was famous, but so much because I felt like I could have compassion and maybe be his friend, you know. Even going on that date with Mickey Dolenz, um, he was going through a divorce. People were coming up every second, like, oh, can I get your autograph? I mean, it was the worst date I've ever been on in that sense because he couldn't really spend much time with me because everybody knew who he was. And so he didn't have any peace of mind or just the space to go out and hang out with a new friend and, and talk about stuff besides his fame. So, you know, I'm sure that was true for David too. Everywhere he went, people go, oh, it's Keith Partridge or, you know, oh, David Cassidy, I have your Cherish album or da 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 Right. You know, but um, did they ever say, how are you doing today? Or what are you into? Do you garden? Do you like to do karaoke? Do you like to, you know, play with frogs? What do you like to do? And they didn't ask about him as a human being. They just wanted to be close to his fame. And that's really sad. Yeah. I think people forget how huge he was, yeah. you know, when he was touring. Like when I saw him, he was the Elvis of the 70s, right? For girls like me. He was my Elvis. Yes. And uh, and I've seen um, footage later on in my life, like uh, almost like four or five years ago, I saw this footage and I was like, oh, I didn't realize how huge he was. He didn't just fall from the Partridge family. He mm -hmm. fell from all that other stuff, too. I mean, it was amazing how big he was yeah. around the world. As I was saying earlier on, I think it's just easy for people to dismiss his talent. You know, I read that book by yeah. Keith Richards' Life. 
which is a tome. It's like bigger than the Bible. It's such a thick book. Um, and if you have, if your listeners haven't read it, um, it's, it's quite an interesting read because the Rolling Stones came along as did the Beatles when people didn't even know what drugs were called, the drugs that the Stones were taking her. And he describes, you know, they would get on stage and the girls were screaming so loud. And this was back when, you know, they just had one amp. And yes. little micro, you know, it wasn't like the sound systems we have today in these stadiums. So they're screaming so loud they couldn't even hear what the Stones or the Beatles were playing. So the Stones would play like TV theme songs and stuff. They they would just do whatever they wanted because the girls couldn't hear them anyway. Mm. And I thought, yeah, not only do people not take you seriously if teenage kids are screaming for you, but um, how can you take yourself seriously if you don't even get to make the music you want to make? And that's why you're there. You know, it's like, oh, so frustrating that I can't do what I've been practicing and writing. I have to just, this is silly time. So, yes, I think, I, you know, I, I, the only time I've ever had teenage girls screaming at me was I was with um, one of the guys, the, the guy that's saying, Lady, from the moment I saw you. Blah, blah, ah. Anyway, I think it's like Foreigner, Journey, or one of those guys. And I was in Minnesota. It was 18 degrees outside, and this radio station had put this show together. And it was Dennis, whatever his name is, Dennis, him, and me. I don't know why I was there. And I went out first, and it was hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of teenage girls. I I don't even know what the deal was. And I came out with an electric guitar just me and I sang some songs and and they had a long catwalk so I walked out in the catwalk I guess I had a lava on and I was singing in my lava and playing my electric guitar and their arms coming up over on all sides of this catwalk was really weird like I've never had girls just screaming the whole time they didn't know who I was and they were screaming to touch me and stuff and it was like in a way it was it was I always wanted to start laughing it wasn't like it didn't flatter me in any way. It was just so silly. Like, what is it I'm doing that they're screaming? And then when he came out, he'd asked me if I would sing the harmony with them. And I was like, are you kidding? Yes, of course. So I'm back there singing and they're just throwing themselves at this person. I don't think they knew who he was either, but I guess it was a town in Minnesota that didn't get a lot of live music. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, so I can't imagine being the Beatles or David Cassidy or, Tom Jones, where women throw their underwear at you. You know, that's just because I don't recall young men doing that with me. You know, I, I I mean, I've certainly had my share of young younger men coming up and flirting with me after a show or sending me a note or giving me gifts. I've got lots of gifts from men, but I don't or they'll swoon. They'll sit on they'll sit there and they'll be like this at a table and they're just like in love oh, with you. And you're like, can't look over at that table too long because that guy's going to get the wrong message. Even yeah. though I'm not singing to him, he's going to think. I, but I don't recall. And I know there's men and boys that screamed at the Beatles and stuff, but um one of the other people I did get to meet was Paul Williams. I was in uh, L.A. with my kids, and we went to um, that really famous restaurant. I can't think of it right now, but I looked across the way, and there was Paul Williams. And I said, excuse me, kids. I, first, I took out my camera, and I took a picture from across the room. <laughs> I'm so goofy. And then I said, I'll be right back. That's Paul Williams. And they were like, who's that? And I was like, oh, my God, it's Paul Williams. So I get up, and I walk across the room, and I'm like, and he's, you know, he's a diminutive little guy and he's got his glasses and he's talking to some woman. I was like, yeah. excuse me, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but 
my name is Sarah Hickman, blah, 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 blah. And you're one of the reasons I make music and blah, 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 blah. And he was like, really? And I was like, yes. And I just wanted you to know that. Da, 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 da. And he was like, well, that's so great to know. And I really wish I could have told David that. I really, I mean, I know he probably heard it from other people, but it still feels good. To this day, if I have somebody come up and say, you know, that song, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, you totally captured how I felt when my mom died or blah, blah, blah. blah. It, it, it's, it's leaving our name in stone, you know, besides on a, a headstone. It's our way of, of, of knowing that we made a difference in this world, even if it's with one person. It just feels good. I think we all want to do that. We all want to know that our lives mattered and made a difference somewhere. And uh, of course, being an entertainer or a musician or a poet or a dancer or a writer or a rapper, all those things, you know, we're wanting, we're wanting to share our art, but we're also wanting to lift up humanity. Well, you do that, Sarah, honestly. Louise, you're my new best friend and I love you. Oh, I've loved this evening. <laughs> I'm going to come over and visit you next time I come over there. Take um, you to tea. I tea. Yes, we'll have afternoon tea. Tea and scones. <laughs> and come to Austin. Come when it's not hot. I wondered if you wanted to talk about your Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, in relation to your colouring book. You mean this one? <laughs> yes, I would love to talk about it. You're so good. Look at you. You knew about everything. Oh, my gosh. This is volume two, isn't it? Volume two. Yes. So uh, a couple years ago, yeah. um, about four years ago, it'll be five next March, I decided I was going to retire from music because... Um, mostly I could see what was happening in the music industry, which is Spotify, Pandora, streaming. Streaming services killed my income. You know, much like that song, video killed the radio star. Well, Spotify killed the rest of us. So um, I decided now would be a good time to retire. You know, I'm 54. That's my favorite number. People were like, what? You're only 54. And I'm like, well... So I started thinking, well, what else can I do? And um, my parents were both visual artists, so I grew up in a home making art all the time. And I got a degree in art. And I was in a bookstore one day, and I was looking to see what kind of coloring books they had. And I noticed there weren't any Texas musician coloring books. And I thought, that's weird. There's got to be one or two. Nothing. So I thought, well, then I'm going to draw it. So it took me two years. It's all hand-drawn. And not only are there 36 pages of 36 different Texas musicians of all eras, all diversity, there's everybody you could think of uh, in volume one of this. So I not only did the 36 musicians, which took me forever to figure out which 36 to put in the first one, but there's corresponding pages and each page has research information on the musician that I did. And I turned it into crossword puzzle or a word search. So you're learning about the musician as you're coloring. And um, it's so far raised over $20,000 for several nonprofits that I helped. I didn't keep any of the money because I gave it all away. And the way I paid for volume one was I sold my grandmother's Steinway piano um, to a recording studio here in town. I know where it is and it's safe. And I have first right of refusal if he ever chooses to sell it so I can buy it back, hopefully. But selling my grandmother's piano, who was a very, very precious person to me, helped pay for the volume one of the pressing of it. So this time I'm coming out with volume two and I'm hoping to have it out in April 2022. And it's again 36 different musicians with 36 different pages of um, information about them. 
And my Kickstarter, I'm raising money to pay for the printing and for my time because last time I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. Now I've learned a lot and it's not a lot of money. I'm just trying to raise $7,300 because that also includes the Kickstarter fees and the taxes I'll have to pay. So I'll probably end up with, you know, $6,500, but that will help pay for the printing and give me about $1,300 to pay myself. But, um, so I'm about, uh, 24% there. I have 25 more days to go and I have faith that I will raise that money and, and then I can do this drawing, do these drawings. And my new list is very exciting. It was also very painful to go through and decide who was going to be in the new one and who was going to have to go in volume three. Wow. <laughs> Finally did one of myself that people that oh, join wow. the Kickstarter get one of these. Oh, I love that. Since you're not showing people, I can show you. No, no, I um, love that. That's wonderful. Thank you. I didn't really want to be in the coloring book. I had a lot of people say, how come you're not in it? And I'm like, well, I'm on the back. You know, there I am. But they're like, but I want a page about you. And I was like, mm. so maybe I'll be in volume four or five or whatever. I don't know. But um, yeah, before we tie things up here, I just wondered, what do you consider David's best song? Mm. Now, you being a songwriter, you being a musician, what do you consider his best song from the vocal presentation? Well, I'm sure there's later songs he recorded that I don't know about. But the song that always comes to me, and I think I mentioned it briefly earlier, that I just, there was something about the song, because I think it was the first time I saw Heartache, perhaps, because I, I seem to remember on the TV show, they had gone to Albuquerque. And I think he falls in love or something, and then they have to leave on the bus. And so that song. I want to go home, I want to go home, diddly, 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 take me, I want to go to Albuquerque. There was something about that song, the way he sang it, and the, it was haunting. All the other songs were kind of fun and goofy and silly, and, and I don't want to say silly, that's not right. They were just a beat songs. That song to me was the first time I heard kind of heartache, kind of like how Cherish has that heartache feel to it. But, Cherish is the word I use to describe all, all the feelings that I have hidden here for you inside. It was more so, I guess, because of the show and watching it and then hearing that song. I've always loved that song. I just think it's really beautiful. And I, you're going to laugh at me. You are so going to laugh at me. At least once a day, I sing the Partridge Family theme song every day. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me, <laughs> but I'll be, I'll be in a car wash or I'll be in the grocery store every day. And at some point, I go, um, "Come on along and sing, everybody." And I won't even. I'll be doing, hmm, 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 hmm. and somebody will go, "What's that song you're singing?" And I'll go, "Oh, it's the Partridge Family theme song. <laughs> it's just so dang catchy." I wish I had a theme song like that. It's so it's good. It's so simple. It's it's a simple song. Yeah, and the little quails going across, the little partridges going across, and just yeah, it's a really good little theme song. And uh, yeah. and I, that's my little secret that you know. <laughs> what do you think David's legacy should be? Wow, um, I think his legacy is um, first. He always had great hair. I mean, I I had his hair. We all had his hair. His hair was great. And around the same time was Parker Stevenson and Sean Cassidy because they came out as the Hardy Boys. And they also had that feathered kind of cool hair. But David was the first, you know, I just, and that seems really simple. But his hair was a huge, to this day, I still, I want my hair to 
look as as not bedheady, but comfortable. He he just had this great hair, and he had a great smile, and there was something um something hopeful about him to me. Like he he in terms of the TV show, he showed what a good family life could be like. What like respecting your parent, your mom could be like. What you know the troubles of being a teenager and all that stuff. Um, so that was very relatable. But I think his legacy is that um, you can you can affect the world in a positive way, and that hopefully the world will remember that and love you through. You know, I'm sad that maybe he felt his his being was tarnished after his star faded somewhat. Mm-hmm. But for people like you and me and the people you wrote about in your book who shared their stories, mm-hmm. uh, he never tarnished in my eyes. You know, I so I would hope that. His legacy will be enjoy the talents you have, share them with others and know that you are enough. You know, you're just beautiful just the way you are. And and uh, he will not be forgotten. I don't I, you know, he just won't be. In fact, now I want to go watch the whole series on Hulu or wherever it is. Yeah. I haven't seen it in so long. I need to go watch it again. Would you like to have sung a duet with him? <gasps> yes, I would have loved to. Are you kidding? Oh, Oh my gosh, you know, one time I got to sing a duet with John Prine on stage, which was very different, mm. but we sang Angel from Montgomery on the same microphone, and I oh. thought he was the sexiest person I'd, I mean, I was just, I couldn't believe I was standing next to him and watching him sweat, and we were sharing this microphone and singing this amazing, beautiful song of his. If I had gotten to do that with David Cassidy, um, first of all, I feel like maybe David Cassidy and I would have been a little giddier, like we would have, <laughs> I don't know, He. I just feel like... Yeah. He would have been, he would have been charmed by my, my, um, my glittering about being next to him. He would have thought that was really sweet. I don't know what he would have, I don't know. But I think our voices would have sounded really good together. Yeah, yeah. Technology today could allow that to happen. You know, actually, I, um, it's funny you say that because one time when I was in college, I was going through this art performance time in my life and I had a record player on stage with me and I put on this album of George Burns songs because I loved George Burns, who I later met. And I sang a duet with George Burns, right? I put the record on. I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. I just put it on and then I got on the mic and I, and I had another mic on the record player and I sang a duet with George Burns, which later I did get to sing a duet with him. But, um. It, it, you know, I just think um, that would have been so cool. And I could do it. You're right. Because all I have to do now is just throw a song in that David sings and then I could sing a harmony and make it and take out his voice in certain places and we can be a duet. So yeah. maybe, wait, I'm writing this down too. Oh, there maybe goes I'll another note, right? Duet with David. <laughs> maybe that's what I'll call it. Sarah's duet with David. And my dad's name was David. So David was an important name in my life. There you are. Um <laughs> I, I've loved this evening. It's been fabulous, Sarah. Oh, look, Twig's looking at you. You want to say goodbye, Twig? Come here, Twig. Come here, baby girl. Come here. Come here, love bug. Come say hi to Louise. <laughs> oh, she's gorgeous. Wonderful. Well, look, thank you again. It's Thank you so much, and I hope you have a peaceful rest of your night, and yes. thank you. Okay, we'll see you very soon. Can't wait. Peace okay. be with you. Bye. Bye. That's it for the show this week. I'd like to thank Sarah for her time and the wonderful stories that she shared with us. You can discover more about Sarah by visiting her website, sarahhickman.com. If you are a new listener and would like to hear more memories and tributes, you can find me on your preferred podcast provider, 
subscribe for free so you will be among the first to know when new episodes are released. This has been Louise Poynton. You can read more about David and what he has meant to so many in my book, Cherish David Cassidy, A Legacy of Love. In the celebration of his life, fans and friends share their personal tributes with deeply moving, never-before-told memories of how he changed their lives and made them better people. Available from Amazon and all bookshops, in-store or online. So, until we connect again...